His name is Heston Blumenthal. Hello. <laughs> our captain, as we take a trip to the centre of food. Welcome aboard. I'm Jay Taylor, your first mate for this adventure, along with our fat duck navigator, James Winter. Why do I say hello and you two don't say hello? We can't do this without the three of us. So I thought I did a low voice hello. hello. So here is, here is, uh, here is our uh questioneering genius adult kid jay taylor hello <laughs> and <laughs> and our knowledge of all information that we refer to on everything james winter hello yeah. and, uh, <laughs> and my name's heston hello <laughs> what are we doing okay. today we are talking about well we're going to be talking well, about kitchens yeah. and creation of kitchens but before, before all that, that we must address the herring in the room uh, oh after last week's episode uh, this one this podcast should begin with an apology to our listeners because last podcast ended in complete chaos and wasn't finished was just abandoned as <laughs> entirely heston's responsibility we all ate rancid herrings from scandinavia entirely <laughs> yes because i sent those herrings to you <laughs> i thank you uh what who's the name of the person that sent them yeah. klaus klaus hammer klaus. i won't forget that name thank you i cannot tell you how many hours of my life was spent trying to get these two guys to indulge in it <laughs> if you could have seen the camera and i'm not saying i was any different but <laughs> this tin was so expanded when you opened it it sprayed everywhere you ran to the loo three or four times james vomited in a bucket me i thought i was doing really hard i didn't even know how to describe my feeling uh and after we finished all this experience i decided that way for me to deal with this was lie down and take deep breaths I tried to turn into a Buddhist monk Meanwhile, that what you, did? In, you in the toilet and I went back to the lab yesterday and the buckets are still there that's that's my fault I was <laughs> so glad no, I was I so glad that James, it, James it's always your fault I know, I know, but I did. I took them outside as far as I dared from the house, and then, and then I think I must have blacked my whole experience from my mind. But I did fill it with water. <laughs> how, so it a- how would you do? De- so, how would you two describe? Uh, I mean, there's lots of ways I can ask this question. I, I'm not talking about dish- deliciousness. How would you describe how? Would you? Did you think your body took over your mind? And again, I'm putting these thoughts in your head. How would you describe your reaction? to that spoonful of stuff that at one point was fish. Well, it's interesting because we set out we set out with that question is, you know, as you've always said, no food is inherently disgusting. Mm. And weirdly, while that was probably one of the most unpleasant experiences of my life, yeah. it's strangely, disgust is not the word I would have used, oddly. Because despite... I, I agree. My, my I body agree. completely overtook everything. It was almost like a sort of flight or fight or flight mechanism where i didn't really have a choice there was sort of yeah. mechanisms in me i didn't even realize were just like no no you absolutely no, yeah, not you had no choice but then i don't know about you but i got left with this it went from acidic to this bitter taste mm. in my mouth and it was a bit like slowing down on the other side of a motorway when there's a car crash and you know yeah. there's something so wrong about it but there's something inside you 
In fact, you know you're not going to die. You're not eating something that is going to send you to hospital. But parts of your body take over the things that we normally think control what we like or dislike in food. How is it that people, how is it that some people out there in Scandinavia can be so different to us in terms of their food tastes that they will eat that on purpose and enjoy it because i'm presuming when they eat it up there it is not some kind of ludicrous dare like we did it it is something they do for pleasure older people yeah the same reason that when we were filming on the cassie sock and you popped your head above the camera and you went i had some water last night it's all right isn't it i thought hang on a second he's being serious here and i was trying to process what does that mean? And you drank milk all the time. There are people that cannot drink milk. They find it repulsive. They find yeah. it like mucusy. They can't drink it. And you go, my glass of water last night. It's all right. That's it. It's Same. what you grew up with, isn't it? If you've grown yeah. up with that, that's your normal. Yeah. And you don't know any. So I suppose the question then is, at the heart of this, we set out to, to, to is there certain foods that are disgusting? Would you, no. well, James, would you consider that food disgusting we had? Um, it was pretty um, re- re- repellent. I mean, there was a moment, uh, the first reaction was, yes, it just stinks. It stinks. It was unpleasant. Yeah. It smelt like feces. It was deeply unpleasant. And then there was not a my, brief Not moment. my feces. No. <laughs> there was a moment. It tasted a little bit like fish, but that moment was... I must have been like three, <laughs> yeah, yes. three seconds. We go, oh, this yeah. is this isn't so bad, and then and then it comes and back the, again. Yeah, there was that yeah, moment. Wasn't there? It's like another part of your body has an argument with a different part of your body, and you yes. think, actually, hang on a second, this is okay. I get something here, and then part of your body somewhere down below says. I'm not having this. That's it. Bits of your body you don't normally ever get involved in the conversation no. suddenly went, excuse me, oh I'm a spleen. God. I wish. Absolutely not. I wish, I wish, I wish our listeners could have seen you, Jay, <laughs> running away from your desk through your pine door with a bucket. And we had to though, finish <laughs> the podcast. You just ran away. I'm not saying that I stood it and took it like a man. You did though. You were you you as with your iron stomach, which was to be expected. If I was going to put my money on someone to be all right with it, it was you. But you didn't seem to have. While you were doing that mindful thing, trying to convince your body that it was all right. It's like find yeah. the good in it. Find the good in it. Yes. Yeah, so okay, let's think about questions. If you ask, would I love to dine out on that inflated tin of liquefied fish? No way. If I was starving to death, maybe I'd appreciate something in it. Was there a moment in that process when I thought, this isn't too bad? Yes. Then, was there a moment where things were happening in parts of my body that were taking over other parts of my body that I didn't know how to react to? Yes. So I dealt with it. I I became Gwyneth Paltrow. I became a Buddhist monk. I lied down and took deep breaths and was full of bitterness and i don't just mean <laughs> bitterness in life Something it probably My- wasn't a million miles away from that that experience of diving into a lake of ice where you basically 
it's not the moment of doing, it's the moment after doing, when your body has reacted and felt things it's never felt before. Yes. There's actually I, the reason I, I, for I doing agree, it. I agree, but I don't remember, but afterwards, maybe other than that, I didn't vomit and felt quite pleased with myself, but then I had to live with this sort of almost malaria tablet bitterness in my mouth for the next hour or so after. A cold lake, it's... It's something that I don't think anyone wants to do, but the pleasure you get when you get out of the cold lake. Mm. I don't remember having that feeling after no that. pleasure <laughs> in this experience. And, <laughs> no, and, and I felt slightly lightheaded for for a good hour or two. <laughs> I don't know whether that was just for for stress and the anxiety, you know, uh, unwinding, yeah. or or what I actually ingested because I- the smell kept stalking me as well i kept getting moments of it even when i was nowhere near where i'd opened it it would come back you ran off with you. you had a big red plastic bucket and you ran away three times where's jay gone he ran away so, ran off with the sick bucket but do you think we'll take that to our deathbed they're the oh, things yeah. that when we look back on those moments we all shared i was going to say pain but we all shared a sort of bodily reaction that we don't normally get when we eat food. If you eat a burger or you eat a, you know, yogurt or plant-based foods or something you think is delicious or good for you, this challenged, for me, it challenged everything in my body in yeah. a way that I didn't think I was going to die, but it was not pleasurable. I found this, uh, no, I was going to say harder, a different category. Remember when we had the like the hottest chili in the world? Yeah. That was a different experience because even though the chili ah. was so hot, it, it it made our faces numb. We yeah. had eaten chili before. I had had shared experiences eating hot food. Whereas, like you said, I've never had a shared experience eating disgusting food together. No, but when we ate that chili, don't you think at one point after I was bent double, bent over double, and my glasses stopped sweating, <laughs> and I was trying to do a piece of camera. But what do you think about this? Blah, blah, blah. And I couldn't stand up and talk. There was a moment where I could stand up. I thought, ah, the pain is now going. This was something completely different. There was no ah moment. There was no, oh, thank God moment. It was just a, the only time I felt that was when the the bin men actually took that bin bag. What the fuck was that all about? (laughs) What just happened? Who was talking to who? Actually, our Scandinavian listeners, because we're lucky enough to have people yeah. out there in Scandinavia, yeah. please do let us know if you know people who genuinely enjoy that food. And and, ah, and if anyone thinks of something more repulsive than that, send it through. <laughs> Let's do it again. Let's do it again. We're going to get some of that rice, that mouse wine we were talking about last week. Oh, I don't okay. want to turn it up in the post. Send, let's send it through. Let's do it again. Maybe let's film. Uh, you guys have to oh. see what we went through. But... It was yeah. so enjoyable because we went through it together. But yeah. would I ever, if I'm hungry, oh, I know what I'd like to eat. <laughs> it wouldn't, it wouldn't, be, it would liquefied fish. We know what to get each other for Christmas now. Another can of that. In fact, uh, we can do a special prize for all our listeners. Oh, yeah. Well, I thought the special special prize was say who could send the most revolting. There has to be a food. There has to be something that is saleable for human consumption. As opposed to. You could buy in the supermarket, right? You could just, that's where he got it from, is just a shop. So it's got to be, that's the rule, isn't it? It's got to be buyable in your local shop. Okay, so here's a question for you. J. 
Japanese, I, uh, Japanese culture is so different from ours. So they have the fugu. They have the fish that the fish, the person that cooks the fish needs a license to cut the fugu. Otherwise it poisons you. Mm. Yeah. And Kyle that worked for me, I remember he spent two years in Japan. He went to Japan with a table of Japanese businessmen. And they went to the sort of probably the most revered fugu fish chef. And it's the liver in the fugu that can kill you. So there's one piece of fugu, which where the knife just touches the liver. Kyle got served this fish with, imagine, table for the Japanese business, Benin suits looking real serious, and Kyle's lips started to tingle. He couldn't breathe. He thought he was having an anaphylactic shock. He recoiled from the table because he thought he was going to die. Oh, my God. And then it passed about 30 seconds later, and then all the Japanese businessmen looked at him and pointed and laughed. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. It's one of those experiences where everyone's waiting for him to try it. Guys, it's going to be funny. Watch him do it. So come on, guys. Bring it on. What do you got? Okay, we'll take it. What have you got? As as, As long as you're allowed to sell it for human consumption, I'm not saying we do this every week. But I actually loved, I didn't love the taste. I'm saying we're categorically not doing this every week. <laughs> oh, <Wow>. in favour. <laughs> um, yes, please do get in touch at Heston's Podcast on Instagram, <laughs> podcast at gmail.com. Or if you're sending in disgusting food, I'll give you a completely different address where you can, <laughs> we will never uh, yeah, reply Jay, to it. Jay Taylor's private <laughs> um, chateau. Exactly. Uh, yeah. And, and while you're there, subscribe listen to us poison ourselves on a regular basis <laughs> now on today's show after yes. the carnage of last week we thought yeah. we would go and have an exploration of something often i have these ones where i come along and i have loads of daft questions to ask heston and one of the things i've been fascinated having been a part of his his kitchen world and watching mm-hmm. his evolution as a chef is how you go about making a kitchen from the professional level which i think is where we start down to our domestic levels at home. I could write a book about this. You've never asked me a... Your questions are brilliant. The answer to this could be summed up in two or three weeks of podcasts. <laughs> Great. Uh, I can blame it. There's never one reason, but just just for now, I'm going to be a victim on my ADHD. And the fact that I had a kitchen that was so crap and badly equipped i needed to find consistency and i think what a lot of people do not think about home cooking and a brigade of chefs in the kitchen are very different and this is right at the heart of the book that we're we're in the process of making the, the being and the doing so there's all these books written about creativity And many of them say you have a vertical relationship, which is like a military hierarchical system. You have a head chef, a sous chef, and a da-da-da. Then when you're creative, you have a horizontal relationship where everyone's ideas are celebrated. But at some point, you're going to have to turn them into a production line. So I had such a crap kitchen my ADHD, my relationship with time, my frustration drove me, thanks to that crap kitchen, to measure the crap out of everything. 
this was the early days of the fat duck, wasn't it? The kitchen you had yeah. just just put some context. People haven't heard when we've spoken about it before. How crap was this kitchen in the fat duck? This just the sheer size of it was remarkable. Uh, it was about the size of. Good question because I'm, I'm I don't my know my square meterage. It was you could fit four people in this kitchen. It was an old pub kitchen. I had a reconditioned six burner gas oven that only four of them worked. I had domestic gas pressure, so nearly everyone's electric hob at home was hotter than the one I had. And there was one oven, so when I cooked fish in the oven. At one point, I had something like 20 to 30 pans, little saute pans with fish and meat in them stacked on top of each other, and I had to try and juggle them with timing. Oh, my God. Uh, it, but it shamed me more than anything else in the world, any other human being. I spent so much time with it. So one example was the obsession. I'm not obsessive. Ever, um, clearly. Of course not. I'll never say that about you. Uh, <laughs> a, le- a lemon tart. Um, there is something about the texture of a lemon tart when it's right. For me, it is at the point when it's just about to collapse. So if it's cooked any, le- any less, it falls apart. It collapses as a, as a custard. If it is cooked a bit too much, it's granular. So how do you do that? I did a wobble test. So you have the pastry, you have the custard, and I wobbled the lemon tart. And it wobbled uh, a certain diameter in the middle of the custard, wobbled in a certain way. So then I tried to teach the other chefs, I didn't have many of them, do the wobble test. (laughs) When it wobbles like this, it's done. So you do that twice a day. Then you put it in the fridge for a couple of hours. When you slice it and then the point of the lemon tart collapses, turn around and go, oh, la, 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 la. And that's all well, I did the wobble test, chef. Is one man's wobble the same as another man's wobble, though? It's just, exactly. So, what I decided to do, I took a probe. And because I was making this every day, I wasn't saying, I'm, saying I'm a better chef than anybody else. But I thought, right, let me do the wobble test and stick a probe in it. I did it for a week two times a day and I was with, with within one degree 71 72 degrees so put it in this oven put an oven thermometer in the oven put the probe in and when it hits 71.5 degrees take it out so you then remove the stress from the person making the level tart and get the consistency if I had an oven which had some fancy computer program and I just went Beep, 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 beep. Another story. Why do all like why does all our kitchen equipment bleep to us? And then it comes out done. I measured, excuse my French again, I measured the shit out of everything. If you can measure it, measure it. Why? Because that frees us up to be human beings. At the same time, what I realized by measuring the crap out of everything, I turned chefs into robots because then I got frustrated that they couldn't be creative because it's going to be exactly like this. 
71.3, 21.5 centigrade for 23 seconds. Measure the crap out of it. But my point was that it would free you up to have more connection with food. Mm. Plus in a restaurant kitchen, it's consistency. Now I'd, lo- I'd love the idea that maybe we should do this at the duck. People know they're coming to the duck and any chef can do whatever they want in service. If someone wants to put a whole banana on a duck breast, <laughs> do it. If the customer knows that, that could be quite interesting. James's face. <laughs> I'm, I'm thinking it's going to be very interesting, could not it? Oh, yeah, you haven't seen my look, you haven't seen my arms. My arms are crossed so tightly and my <laughs> oh, yeah, feet are crossed so tightly. You look comfortable with that idea. No. So I created the most precision-driven kitchen system that I think it existed in the world ever. I'm not saying it's the best, but it no one will ever overcook or undercook something. They will cook it to the way that the that the, the idea that it was measured to be cooked at. Then what happens is it's so precise, there's fear of failure. I know so we pres- once had a conversation on a plane and you were, you were lamenting, why are my chefs not creative? Well, Did I ever lament? It. I wish I was that clever. I love you the lamented. word. Yeah. I, I lamented. Yeah. But it was like this, there almost feels like there's a massive conflict between ultimately delivering perfection every time to the exact same specification requires, yes. like you said, a robotic, militaristic approach. And then the idea of doing the opposite of that, which is breaking everything to see what happens, ah, ah, is yes. completely different. Including an egg, but that's an, another story. <laughs> so picture a chart with a left and the right-hand column. And life isn't this simple, but just I'm, I'm going to try and make things as simple as I possibly can, which I'm not very good at. The left-hand side is feminine, creative energy, non-linear, which embraces emotion, is more connected with your relationship and the journey. Uh, Failure, without failure, you have nothing to learn. You're not obsessed on the end result. It is a non-linear system of measurement. It is human being, and it taps into the parasympathetic nervous system. Female energy, creativity, twirly-whirly stuff where you just, you know, you apply motion and you just go with the flow. On the right-hand side is male energy, which is your sympathetic nervous system, which is perfection and measurement and uh, geography and fear of failure, judgment is if you don't, you're gonna you, you're gonna f it up. So you need. I it took me years to realize I created this perfection kitchen, and then screamed at it metaphorically because it couldn't come up with any creativity. So then I got angry with the perfection system, but without that, we couldn't have this conversation we couldn't manufacture things but without imagination we couldn't have perfection so well, you ended up with your human... lab though didn't you because your lab almost became that other side of the diagram where the people uh, could well do it did until covid came along i don't know where to put covid in there but yes yes covid uh, the lab exactly a group which i've got an amazing group of people uh, james and you aside um <laughs> a small group of people where we can take the piss out of each other (laughs) exactly we 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 have a horizontal relationship where embrace failure 
Try and make the shittiest thing you can think of. Try and make it. Then it turns everything on its head. When you have things like three Michelin stars or the best restaurant in the world, then you become scared of losing some stuff. So Matthew Side, the ex-Commonwealth table tennis champion, who was a good friend of mine, wrote a book called Bounce. That believed that natural born genius doesn't exist and worked with, what's his name, Peter. Oh my God, he's the, he's the head psychologist for the British Olympic team and, and did a book called Wrestling Peaks with Andrew Strauss. So he worked with us as well. Matthew's point was natural born genius doesn't exist. And they both said the hardest thing for an athlete, the hardest is not trying to win a gold medal at the Olympics, for example, is when you won one. What do they do next? The yeah, pressure. It's down, isn't it? Oh my God, the pressure after you've won it you only go down from there. So, so coming back to the professional kitchen, I'm trying to close the loop here, that I think there is such a difference between cooking at home and cooking with a kitchen team. Unless you tell people tonight uh, you might be having Chinese mixed with sweet corn milkshake that will be burnt by my wife's next door neighbour. Who knows? <laughs> If you know that, that's another concept. But well, we I'm curious expect- then because I, I watched you. I watched you about what, gosh, how long was it? It's about six, seven years ago now. After twenty odd years in the fat duck in that tiny, tiny kitchen, mm-hmm. you eventually, you finally moved the fat duck to Australia and ripped apart yeah. that kitchen and rebuilt it with basically what your perfect vision within the physical constraints of the. And space. my whole company told me, "What a waste of money." You have a 35-seat restaurant. You're spending two and a half million pounds in the kitchen. Why? Is that what it called? How did you... So what, tell me about that kitchen then. When you're given the... What did you do with it that you always wanted to do with the kitchen and you never could because the other one was so small and restrictive? Uh, many things, actually. So there was an ergonomic uh, consideration. When you're in the kitchen, minimize the amount of footsteps you need to take to go and go somewhere. If you have to walk 20 meters to go to the walk-in fridge to get an onion every time you need an onion, that adds up. You waste so much time. You also give more chance to bump into somebody else. Time, how long it takes to deliver an ice cream to a table and the temperature of the room. Because if by the time it gets there, the ice cream melts, it's not the same as it leaves the kitchen. When you spin around in the kitchen because you're going to turn around from, say, an oven to, to, to the past, if you're left-handed or right-handed, your elbow might stick out more than somebody else's. So you could have a negative effect. Oh my God. So that's the level of depth I went into also on kitchen surfaces. I mean, I can write a book about this. Kitchen surfaces. There's no cor- the, the corners are curved. They're, they're sanded, so they're round. It sounds stupid, but you are less likely to bump a pan into it. You're less likely to stab yourself on the end of the corner. When we looked at the ovens, we had the tops, which were titanium, from one company. The induction was from another company. The Josper 
the, the, the wood fire grill was from another company, the extraction system from another company. It was completely bespoke. It was bespoke. This is your Formula One car, wasn't it? This is your McLaren. This is you getting to indulge just your, your, your level of detail and your attention to detail on these fronts. Yeah. Dinner in London. Dinner in Melbourne was the most expensive kitchen in the world per capita. 12 million. Oh my. And that was, that was big as well. That was a kitchen. Yeah, that, that was big. I'd love to say it's my money. So I was thinking, <laughs> how come I just like a big kid at Christmas? There were three central reservations. So if you guys can imagine this, I designed something where the pass is where the food goes out of. So that's where the chef puts the plates of food on. So I wanted a pass that had two sides to it, not one. So you dress from both sides. So imagine there's your table. Then you have three perpendicular ovens moving up to that pass. So one perpendicular oven has the meat section. One has the hot, the, the garnish section. One has the hot starter section and the cold starter section is in a different kitchen. So can you imagine this? I'm just trying to think if you've got three, think of a set of cricket stumps. Yeah, it's like an E shape, wasn't it? There was the pass and then there was the yeah, three the islands three going and, off it. Yeah. So the gaps between those islands, the chefs can just carry the food to the pass and back, pass and back. Oh yeah, there was back. no crossover, was there? And there was no circular no. system. You could just no, turn and no, but to I do that you it, had to know exactly what each station was before you made it, right? You even know. the height of the oven. Because if you're bending down, if you have to bend down too much and your backside goes out, you block somebody walking behind you. <laughs> wow. I can go I into this. I can go into I could spend this the level of design of the kitchen. The reason for the titanium was because when you have something on the pan uh, on a heat, you can move it from induction to the titanium side, which keeps it warm. And then underneath there, there were warming drawers of different temperatures. So when the meat's ready, it rests in a warming drawer. When the chef says it's ready, the people in the past say, call for table four, uh, one sea bass, one lamb, one something or other. Uh, and then the runners... They then go and pick up the plates when they've rested and they bring them to the people dressing on both sides of the pass. And then the person on the outside of the pass has the check. So in the fat duck, 17 courses, we have, we time every single plate of food. So when the plate of food leaves the kitchen, the time gets written. When the person finishes it, the plate of food, the time gets written. If there's a table of two, so let's say you and I are having a really romantic dinner and you're looking into my eyes and you're saying, Heston, I love you. <laughs> my darling. <laughs> yeah. And then I go, well, I need, I, I need a poo, hang on. <laughs> and it's just at the time where the kitchen are plating up your food. So I go to the loo. What happens? The kitchen sends two plates of food out, leaves one on the table behind, so you get your plate of food on your own, Oof. and you want to eat them together. Mm. So we have a camera at the top of the stairs. We don't have a camera in the toilet or under the toilet. <laughs> when, 
just that was another. But you joke. are watching. The, the chef is watching, isn't it, to know when you leave. So, so never table two, up. position two has gone as they've left the table. They might go have a cigarette. Who cares? But they've left the table. So you stop plating the table of two up. You hold it. I do know what a spanner that throws in the works as well, because I remember once when you were re- redesigning the new FD, I was lucky enough to be invited along with a couple of friends to come and be one of the trial diners and Johnny, your head chef. And I got distracted. I got taken off by Issa, your head sommelier, to the wine store. And we were just chatting for ages. Yeah, and I got a text rid of you. from Johnny saying, go back to your bloody table now. And I'm like, oh yeah, so sorry. I've forgotten. Yeah. And when everyone comes out of the toilet, when every single person comes out of the toilet, somebody goes in and cleans it. New toilet paper, new is clean every single time. But we don't do it, for example, with a table of six, you have to be careful. Because if one person goes to the toilet or has a cigarette, quite often the other one go, Oh yeah, maybe I'll have a pee-pee as well. And then maybe I'll have a pee-pee. Like a relay. So, then you, so when it's six, just send the five plates, keeps them at the table. In your kitchen as well, I noticed that there's no in your memory in my my image of kitchen, especially sort of when you see busy kitchens, you tend to think of lots of hanging space and lots of things at eye line and and every whereas in your kitchens there isn't lots of stuff at eye line. In fact, there's nothing across above the the stations. Everything is. And do you think that's a bad idea? Well, no, because suddenly everyone can see each other all of a sudden. It, the kitchen exact, feels very calm and open. It's like an orchestra playing. You don't have to shout at each other. You can see, you can have eye contact. The same thing with, with I, maybe this could be, oh, I'm, I'm going to be a victim, ADHD. No, there's some noises I'm very sensitive to. When kitchen porters, who are the most valuable part of the kitchen team, if you lose your kitchen porters, you, you are effed. You don't get your pants back. We have seven kitchen porters for 35 people, which is a record. <laughs> there's no noise. There's no noise. All they need to do is turn around and look at a chef. If the chef needs a question, they can ask a question. So if you look at an orchestra, great orchestras, they look at the conductor. The conductor doesn't start talking to them. We chef, we chef, no chef, we chef, no chef. Rien avant, all of this language. Show devant, show derriere, blah, 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 blah. Just minimize the noise. When, Actually, when your kitchens are in... almost completely quiet. There's an occasional the most quiet kitchens. That something I've on ever table had. two, we chef, and that's it. And then everything yeah. gets delivered. It's beautiful. And if there's a problem, someone can mention there's a problem. If a, if if a pot washer has a problem with the washing machine, they can turn and go, chef, the washing machine's not working, and they'll get heard. They have to shout, we chef. It's just nonsense. You don't need that. But it is like an orchestra. And it's everyone is as important as everyone else. And we've lost human connectivity in kitchens. So that eye contact is all you need. I'm sounding like I'm a, I'm a Buddhist monk, His Holiness the Dalai Lama. I'm sitting here saying, oh, yes, uh, but this has taken years. And, you know, one of my biggest inspirations within this was my own anger management. Because if somebody messes up, this, is, this changed my life. And anyone listening, I would say, it's just a suggestion. Take responsibility for any emotion you have. It's my fault. Now, as a boss, it's my fault. So you don't have to beat yourself up. But if you take responsibility for everything, so if somebody keeps making a mistake, 
either they're not the right person for the job, they are being expected to do too much, they haven't been trained properly. Oh, it's my fault. It's the chef's fault. Take responsibility. It makes life so much easier rather than pointing a finger, calling them a whatever you call me normally, and getting angry. And then the same thing happens the next night. Einstein said, well, it's stupidity is doing the same thing over again, expecting a different result. That's such. I, I, you, know, we had that, you mentioned that to me years ago, and I've taken that on board with all the teams I've ever managed in TV. Is this idea of ultimately, if they're not right, it is my fault. Like you said, I, I haven't managed yeah. them, I haven't looked yeah. after them, I haven't looked after them properly on all those fronts. And I think your kitchens, the, the recent ones, the ones where you've been able to build them from the ground up, have been about sort of putting people in the right position to do as well as they possibly can. I'm curious about lighting yes. in the kitchen. Yeah. Your kitchens are I'll, quite I'll, I'll come on to lighting. Dark. But something else that's very important. Um, so many chefs lie. Oh, human on. beings lie. Human beings lie. I don't have a problem with people lying. Lying is a natural human thing. Yeah. I do have a problem, but this is something I need to look at my, maybe one of my many issues I look at myself on. I do have people, I do have a problem with people that lie and then point fingers at other people. So chefs will say, I'm always in my restaurant. It's bullshit. So that's <laughs> why at dinner with the Mandarin, it's dinner by Heston. It's not Heston at the Mandarin because that's a lie. And the Mandarin wanted me to say, I'm going to do 25 days a year or something. And I refused because I said, if you want me there, my name's over the door. So you're going to have to put your trust in me. I didn't leave. I did not leave that hotel. I left once to go to the pharmacy. Um, I was going to make a joke and say I had to buy some medicine for somebody else. I think I just went and get some neurofilm for myself. I did not leave that building in one month. I wasn't in my contract. I wasn't in my contract. Why? I, I did table. I walked around the tables. The kitchen team could do all this. When chefs say, oh, I never leave my kitchen, what signal does it send to the other chefs? You're all my little children. None of you are, in, you can't do what I, I do. So I had a back operation years ago. Uh, I had, it was a private healthcare thing. It was a fairly major operation, but I could choose when I booked it. And so I booked it over the three weeks when we shot Christmas. I should have stayed off for three, uh, six weeks. I came back after we reopened. So I'm standing the other side of the pass with my crutches after eight years, nine years. I think I missed one or two services in that time. I'm looking at the food going out. I'm thinking, okay, now, this, this, this looks all right. And then I started <laughs> tasting the sauces and I got mixed with this really bizarre feeling. I thought, this is amazing. At the same time, I said, maybe you're not as important as you thought you were. <laughs> <laughs> it was an amazing thing because it allowed me to delegate and give responsibility. So when people say, oh, how come, what happens when you're not there? Paul Bacou said this once, who does the cooking when you're not there? And he said, the same people that do the cooking when I am there. It's Lovely. like an orchestra. That's lovely. That everyone is as valuable as everybody else, and people don't realize how much work people put into the kitchen. 
Well, it is one of those pit crew teams. You know, you hear Lewis Hamilton and sort of endlessly thanking the engineers and the guy who changes the tires. But it is in your kitchen. It feels like that. The car doesn't function without everyone. No. Imagine if you if you lost your pot washer. If you lost eight, we have seven. So you need a pan. I see the dishwasher. It'll be half an hour. Or yeah, table seven's waiting for their fish. It's Sorry, so what excuse are you going You need, they're so valuable. They're so precious. They're as precious as a chef. If your pot washer, even that, I don't even like that name, but if your kitchen porter, pot washer, whatever you want to call him or her, walks out, the kitchen collapses. It collapses. Interesting what you're saying as well about the physical toll, because lots of the things you've talked about in terms of uh, the designs of your kitchen have mm-hmm. sound like they're actually there to minimise the impact on a chef who's doing the same things over and over and over again. And I'm curious about in terms of designing a kitchen for a yeah. domestic setting. I think we're much, uh, yeah. we're very inclined in our own kitchens to sort of just put up with stuff. If something's in the wrong drawer, you don't tend to move it. And like you said, we don't think at home about minimising steps. Oh, you just God, like, oh my God, right. you just touched, you touched a sunburn. <laughs> again i'll put this out on adhd thing michael mcintyre did a fantastic sketch why do scissors always move <laughs> why are they never in the same drawer so if i'm on my own and i've lost my pen then i can retrace my steps if i think somebody else in my life has moved my pen to a different place or they put it in the garden Mm-hmm. Or some people have a way of tidying up where they just open a drawer and throw it in a drawer. It creates merry hell in my head. I just, I just, so where, I mean, and, and this is really logic. In people's home kitchens, they put aesthetics before stress. So if you want to run to get a particular implement, because you just love jogging 17 meters to get a whisk, great. When you're in the middle of doing something, do you not want to make your pots and pans and your implements as close to the thing you're using to cook? And people put functionality and they put they put aesthetics before functionality. Think That's of so ergonomics. True. That's so true. It's all about the look of it. You wouldn't put your pans right in front of where you chop if it didn't look right. You'd probably stick them away in a drawer in the back that- or have a big fancy island that you have to so, say walk wh- 10 meters to get around where you're sitting now even in the front of house tables don't get me started on tables <laughs> <laughs> so if your elbows are too low so just imagine drop your elbow drop, drop your elbows on your table drop them, yeah. drop them, drop them and you're trying to wait oh just that's more exhausting and it feels like miles to your mouth as well, doesn't it? Yeah. The psychologist for the British Olympic team, he did an experiment where he put people in rooms, they wrote a paper on this, and he showed them photographs of relationships, famous and non-famous people. So the people then looked at these photographs and they said, are, this, are these couples in a stable or unstable relationship? He just looked at a photograph. And then half the room was sitting on chairs that were unstable. Oh, wow. And the people that sat on unstable chairs, they rated a much higher level of photographs of unstable relationships. 
Oh, that's brilliant. So oh, there's nothing about... more bloody annoying than a wobbly table either with bending over beer mats oh. to try and shove oh. under it. It really oh. affects your enjoyment, doesn't it, if you get the wobbly table? It's quite anxious. Yeah. Oh, my God. Pizza Express with knives dropping on marbles, scraping. It, it's like a Harley Davidson for me is an invasion of my noise. Listening yeah, to the crickets. So loud. Oh, I, well, I just want I just, ah, oh, why would you? Somebody might want to love driving a Harley Davidson, but just don't drive it. Just bugger off and drive it somewhere away. <laughs> yeah, but go get a quarry you, on your own. Yeah, go to a quarry. If you listen to loud rock music, it speeds your eating up by 20%. If you listen to classical music, you, your people spend 15 to 20% more on their wine bill. <laughs> we think we know that why we're making the decisions that we're making. Now, me, I don't do that. I kind of do the opposite. I do 80% of the work for 20% of the benefit, which yeah, is the opposite. Completely from the wrong way around. Uh, yeah, I have. I have. So when you sit on a chair and when you're they, the angle of your elbows, and if you can't put your feet on the ground and you have to put your toes up because the chair's not quite the right size or your knees get stuck on, under the table, all of these things interfere Unless you tell people we're going to serve you a meal with your with your with your heels off the ground, they interfere with your enjoyment because it's a distraction from your relationship with food. So you mentioned about lighting. Yeah, and the, I'm curious about this because in your kitchen they're quite dark, but there there are pools of light for each chef. Again, yeah, it feels kitchen, a bit like an orchestra, the, actually. Yeah, the kitchens aren't dark. The lighting is pointed. So when you work in a kitchen at home and if you're chopping somewhere and you can't quite see it, you need light. But That's the contrast point. between the light and dark, all the places where the lighting is in the kitchen is really, is very carefully calculated. So the kitchens aren't dark. The surfaces are dark. If the kitchens were too bright or very bright, it's a much more energetic, aggressive, think of, I don't know, mcdonald's or somewhere i was just going to say there's also plenty of natural light in the in the fed duck kitchen it's a wonderful space and i think that's quite a rarity in a, in a restaurant kitchen to, to oh, have a I, window I, f- <laughs> I forgot about that i forgot about that we've got a kitchen window where you can press a button and it changes and allows the sunlight in and the lights in the kitchen are meant to be replicating sunlight so look out a window why do kitchens have to be dungeons why do chefs have to have to be put in basements and hidden out of the way they're human beings we have the same within tv with edit suites for some reason edit suites are always in dungeons with no windows uh, great, a great I, product to be creative you're suddenly like why can't i see the outside world I, I don't know how an editor can do it i'm in awe of editors how they don't fall asleep i also don't like the fact that whenever i walk into an edit suite to I'm involved in editing one of my shows my facial position is just looks <laughs> like i've got just catch me in a position. Yeah, they'll always slow-mo you. And you walk in as it's paused on the most unflattering moment. Yeah, but they have to choose the eye movement. Yeah. So this is an interesting one about lighting at home as well, because, again, I think that's one of those ones where our home kitchen lighting will not be chosen to help with the cooking. It will be chosen to make the kitchen look nice when you look at it as a kitchen. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Focus <clears throat> on the areas where we cook. Why don't we make the place that we are cooking in as lovable as possible, as enjoyable as possible. As we, uh, so a few days ago, James and I were sitting outside. We were doing one of the recipes for the, for the, for the new book. And one of the dishes, Daniel Monia cook was, um, 
was a sort of Roshdi, Japanese-influenced umami, and it had dancing bonito, which is, bonito is dried tuna. It looks like a piece of wood. And when you, sh you shave it into thin slices and put it on something hot, it moves. We were sitting outside. There was music, uh, and there were crickets. We looked at the flakes of tuna. Uh, I can't do this. How do you explain this movement? Well, going in and out, that, sort of wobbling. That's wobbling. Pascal's movement. Yeah, wobbling, yeah, yeah. wobbling, opening and closing. Yeah, like there's magic but, fish when you were a yeah. kid. Mm, that's it. Exactly, the red magic fish when you were a kid, but going in and out. Then listen to the crickets and listen to the music. The dancing bonito, it's called in, Jap in, in, in Japanese, was dancing to the music. Wow, cool. That's amazing. Life is amazing. We just have to dig through some of the crap to be able to actually discover the things that we can discover. It's amazing. Absolutely amazing. This is making so me had... literally think about my kitchen. I'm going to go downstairs and pour away that massive pot of crap. You know, you have that pot with all the old wooden spoons you never use anymore and all the whisk and stuff you don't use all crammed in one corner. Oh, throw it away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just throw it away. <laughs> I've never used the bloody things. It's just... And, and then get a sledgehammer and just smash all the cupboards down. <laughs> just go on. I'm sure Mrs. So J will, will... You're talking about my past. But sorry, I'm, I'm saying this. I'm looking at my kitchen and there's things I hoard. I need, I need to rearrange this kitchen. Oh, no. We set you off now. Well, yeah, we, it'll yeah. be like... It'll I draw. The salt's never in the same flipping place again. And... Oh. Spice rack. Well, on that note, I'm afraid this has been absolutely fascinating. Anyone out there listening, you have any questions about kitchens, any or any feedback on your experiences in the workspaces, you know, professional or home kitchens, we'd love to hear them. Please do drop us a line because I think it's always useful to hear different experiences and also from around the world with different cuisines and how you find your space works best for different cuisines and if anyone's got anything about their own kitchen that just really annoys them but somehow they've never done anything about it or they don't understand why it's there just share it because we all have them i'm thinking about my own kitchen there are so many parts of it that i just don't like I'm, think, I'm thinking about mine now as well. <laughs> for this week, Heston, thank you ever so much. That was really, really interesting and a fantastic insight. Uh, but for now, that is all we have time for. James, thank you for being there as ever. And Heston, until we speak to you next week, thank you very much. I'm now going to rearrange my kitchen, but I don't think I've got the energy to do it. <laughs>